0: The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew podcast where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is from Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, Book 4, Chapter 50. Uh, And Aurelius writes, An unphilosophic but nonetheless effective help to putting death in its place is to run over the list of those who have clung tenaciously to life. What more did they gain over those who died prematurely? At any rate, they are all in their graves by now. Caedicanus, Fabius, Julianus, Lepidus, and all others like them, who, after carrying many to the grave, were themselves carried out. In truth, the distance we we have to travel is small, and we drag it out with such labor, in such poor company, in such a feeble body. No great thing then, and then I think the text is corrupt, because the sentence... uh, Another sentence starts, look behind you at the huge gulf of time and another infinity ahead. Is this perspective, what is the difference between, is this perspective, what is the difference between an infant of three days and a nestor of three generations? Okay, so leaving aside those particular references, uh, which I... I'm too lazy to look up. Um, the main point of this thing is that he's giving you a perspective, uh, a way to put death into perspective, which he calls unphilosophic, Okay, which we'll come back to that in a second. And uh, the the technique is basically to look at the people who clung tenaciously to life and ask yourself what they gained over someone who died prematurely um, and look at the infinite time, the span of time before and after you. Uh, and then consider, is there really a difference between a baby who dies after three days and a nestor, whoever that is, who died after three generations? So my first instinct here is to say, obviously, yes, there is a big difference. I mean, according to Torah, uh, then th- there is a difference between someone who does get a chance to live enough life to do mitzvot, serve God, learn Torah, learn Chachmah, develop their soul, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, versus someone who doesn't. And uh, infant of three days didn't get the chance. Um, so... So in that sense there is a difference. But then I was thinking about the fact that he says he acknowledges that this is an unphilosophic method of putting death into its place, which leads me to believe that even he is acknowledging that there is a difference between these people, but he's saying just look from the perspective of objective reality like is there a like from the perspective of the universe itself in 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 the framework of the universe itself uh, then is there a difference between uh, three days and three generations? And the answer is no. And so the question, I guess, is like what? When he says it's it's unphilosophic but nonetheless effective, then wh- effective for what exactly? Like what is this supposed to do? What effect is this supposed to have on me? I'm going to f- flag that right now and intend to come back to it. But I want to take you on a little tour of where my mind went when I was when I was thinking about this. So my first, I got caught up on that last uh, that last line. So my first uh, thought really was. Like, yeah, there's a difference between an infinite three days and three generations. And if you're clinging tenaciously to life, there could even be a difference between, you know, let's say you're 70 years old and versus 70 years on three days, years old and three days, you know, that's a difference as well. Um, and I was, th- I mean, there are plenty of places where this is talked about, but I just happened to flip to this one in the Rambam, in the Mishnah Torah, Sefer Hamada Hilchos Deus 4. one, the laws of character traits. And this is the chapter where he talks about health. Uh, and he starts it off by saying, Who, since having a healthy and intact body uh, is one of the ways of Hashem, meaning the ways um, that lead us to knowledge of Hashem, because it's impossible to understand or know things when you're sick, meaning to pursue knowledge, therefore a person needs to distance himself from things that destroy the body. And he needs to accustom himself to things that uh, make him healthy. Okay, so, and then he goes on to list all these things. So I was thinking, yeah, of course, we we hold that you should, well, we certainly hold that life is valuable and that you should protect life at every cost, at all costs, but we also hope that you should prolong your life as much as possible and extend it you know um and that's caring for your body so that you can be involved in serving god and and gaining knowledge for as long as you can um, so then I was poking around in Epictetus and looking to see if there was anything that he wrote on this. And um, I was actually looking for something else for a different episode. And I stumbled upon a passage where he's talking about uh, what what to do if you are sick with a fever, okay? And he goes through various um, thoughts that you might have. And then he, he, he lands on this one objection that a student might have, which is, but I cannot attend to my philosophical studies, okay? Meaning, I don't like having a fever because when I'm, when I have a fever, I can't be involved in philosophy. Okay. And that's very similar to what the Rambam said is when you're, when you're sick, you can't be involved in knowledge. Right. So listen to how Epictetus responds to this. Um, and, uh, I I think it it bears on the Rambam and it also bears on Marcus Aurelius. Okay. I'm going to read the whole thing without comment first. Uh, so, but I cannot attend my philosophical studies and for what purpose do you follow them? Slave? Is it not that you may be happy, that you may be constant? Is it not that you may be in a state conformable to nature and live so? What hinders you when you have a fever from having your ruling faculty conformable to nature? Here's the proof of the thing. Here's the test of the philosopher. Oh, Sorry, I, I uh, vocalized that wrong. Here is the proof of the thing. Here is the test of the philosopher. For this also is a part of life, like walking, like sailing, like journeying by land, so also is fever. Do you read when you are walking? No. Nor do you when you have the fever. If you walk about well, you have all that belongs to a man who walks. If you bear fever well, you have all that belongs to a man in a fever. What is it to bear a fever well? Not to blame God or man, not to be afflicted by that which happens, to expect death well and nobly, to do what must be done. When the physician comes in, not to be frightened at what he says, nor if he says you are doing well, to be overjoyed. For what good has he told you? And when you were in health, what good was that to you? And even if he says you are in a bad way, do not be despondent. For what is it to be ill? Is it that you are near the severance of the soul and the body? What harm is there in this? If you are not near now, will you not afterward be near? Is the world going to be turned upside down when you are dead? Why then do you flatter the physician? Why do you say, if you please, master, I shall be well? Why do you give him an opportunity of raising his eyebrows? Do you not value a physician as you do a shoemaker when he is measuring your foot, or a carpenter when he is building your house, and so treat the physician as to the body which is not yours but by nature dead? He who has a fever has an opportunity of doing this. If he does these things, he has what belongs to him. For it is not the business of a philosopher to look after these externals, neither his wine nor his oil nor his poor body, but his own ruling power. But as to externals, how must he act? So far as not to be careless about them. Where then is there reason for fear? Where is there then still reason for anger and a fear about what belongs to others, about things which are of no value? For we ought to have these two principles in readiness, that except the will, nothing is good or bad— and that we ought not to lead events, but to follow them. Um, is that the end of the passage here? Yeah. Okay, fine. So, I mean, he made a lot of points here, but but the point that stood out to me was really in the beginning, where he says, let's say you are sick, okay, and you have a fever, and you can't concentrate on your learning. Um, and so he says, you know, the student might say, well, this is a bad thing. I can't concentrate on my learning. So what, what Epictetus would say is, well, when you are asleep, are you upset that you can't learn while you sleep? When you walk, are you upset that you can't read while you walk? You know, when you are, uh, you know, uh, driving, are you upset that you can't learn Gemara? So the answer is, if you are, then that's a problem. But if you're not, you know, a rational person would not be upset that he can't learn while he's asleep because he knows his body needs sleep and the state of sleep is incompatible with the state of learning. So too, when you have a fever and you can't concentrate, a feverish man cannot learn. So that's what the, that's what it is right now. You know? So accepting the fact that you are in the uh, a phase or condition of life where, where your philosophical activity is, uh, is, you know, is, is impeded. Like if you take that to its logic, I mean, this is like a reductive ad absurdum argument. Like we take that to its logical conclusion, then you should be upset when you're in the bathroom, going to the bathroom, because you can't learn that either. You know, like, like just accept the fact that you have a fever and when and people who have fevers can't learn and you are physical and your subject having fevers, you know? Um and uh, and then he, he has a second point, which is that this is what you were training for in philosophy. That you were you were training for the fact, like when you say you can't learn philosophy, the point of philosophy is to prepare you for how to live in line with nature, you know? And so so i think elsewhere, I can't remember where offhand, he says that it would be like if um uh if a, an athlete who was going to be competing in like the Olympics trained for the Olympics and then didn't compete in the Olympics, right? We would say that that was uh, wasted training. So, so too, if you're, if you're training in philosophy to be able to Maintain your your peace of mind, you know, no matter what happens to externals, and then you you face externals and you don't do it, you don't take advantage of that opportunity. Then you've you what have you been studying philosophy for? Um, now that on the surface seems to be different than the way that we talk about learning in Judaism, but there are there are parallels. For example, you know, let's say Tehillim, you know, uh, that and Tefillah. Now the point of Tehillim and Tefillah is to cultivate to cultivate your trust in God and your acceptance of God's will no matter what. Um, you know, same thing with Av Hashem, with love of God, uh, and fear of Hashem is, you know, resigning yourself to God's will. So if you are, this is really, these are the reasons why we learn and why we cultivate our relationship with God. So if we then find ourselves in a position where we can't, you know, where we're we are, you know, incapacitated this is what we've been preparing for. It's been this moment that we're preparing for here, you know? So, uh, that is something, um, I think that, that, that we, we too can use. Then there was this last part, and this is actually what took me to this passage where he said, um, where is this? What are you afraid of? Uh, yeah. Are you afraid of? Yeah. Is it that you are near the severance of the soul from the, and the body? What harm is there in this? If you are not near now, will you not afterwards be near? Is the world going to be turned upside down when you are dead? So then that led me back to Marcus Aurelius thinking, like, this guy who's clinging tenaciously to life, um, you know, and Marcus Aurelius is saying, what does he actually gain from that? Like, it does seem that there is a certain irrationality in that. Like, let's say he gets those three extra days, and let's see now, 10 years from now, when he's 80, he's going to be in a situation, he's in a similar situation where he has, you know, he could either extend his life by three days or not. I mean, yeah, on the one hand, those three days could be valuable. But on the other hand, you know, what did you think that these three days were not going to come that you were going to get into a period where you were not going to be on the brink of death? Like, and if not at 80, then at 90, and if not 90, then at 100, you know, so this feeling that you can avoid, I think that's the point he's he's saying here is that if your fear of death comes from a, you know, a, uh, uh a the loss of opportunity to um to develop more and to be involved in learning you know etc so then you apply what epictetus says which is that that first of all this is what you've been preparing for your whole life and secondly um uh secondly um I just lost my point oh yeah secondly just like when you are asleep or when you have a fever you can't learn so too you know when you're in this state you can't learn and when you're dead you can't learn but if you are bothered by the fact that your death is inevitable, so then that's just totally absurd. You know, everyone's going to die. And I think that might be what uh, what Marcus Aurelius' words are trying to, um, to get you to realize, you know. Uh, I hope that was clear. I don't know. I feel like uh, it's clearer in my head than when I said it. Now, I just wanted to read one more thing also. Um, there's this book I read. Uh, I actually read it at the beginning of the pandemic by Barbara Ehrenreich, um, who was a, um, who's an investigative journalist, but she also has a PhD in cellular immunology, um, and so she wrote this book called. Uh, this is one of these books where as soon as you read the title and the subtitle, you get a, uh, an instant idea of the thesis. The book is called Natural Causes, An Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. So I'm going to read this fairly long passage. Well, not long, three paragraphs here. And she's talking about, and this is towards in the intro of the book, where she's talking about um, her attitude towards death and that of her friends. Okay, uh, And I'll explain afterwards why I'm reading it. She says, uh, I was going against the green for my particular demographic, but Bo- most of my educated middle-class friends had begun to double down on their health related efforts at the onset of middle age. If not earlier, they undertook exercise or yoga regimens. They filled their calendars with upcoming medical tests and exams. They boasted about their good and bad cholesterol counts, their heart rates, and blood pressure. Mostly, they understood the task of aging to be self-denial, especially in the realm of diet, where one medical fad, one study or another, condemned fat and meat, carbs, gluten, dairy, or all animal-derived products. In the health-conscious mindset that has prevailed among the world's affluent people for about four decades now, health is indistinguishable from virtue. Tasty foods are, quote, sinfully delicious, while un- well, sorry- Did I read that correctly? Yeah, tasty foods are sinfully delicious, while healthful foods may taste good enough to be advertised as, quote, guilt-free. Those seeking to compensate for a lapse undertake punitive measures like fasts, purges, or diets composed of different juices carefully sequenced throughout the day. I had a different reaction to aging. I gradually came to realize that I was, in italics, old enough to die by which I am not suggesting that each of us bears an expiration date. There is, of course, no fixed age at which a person ceases to be worthy of further medical investment, whether aimed at prevention or cure. The military judges that a person is old enough to die to put him or herself in the line of fire at age 18. At the other, at the other end of life, many remain world leaders in their 70s or older without anyone questioning their need for lavish, con, for lavish continuing... Hold on. I think this is a typo here. Or not a typo. I think this is a a scan mistake. Sorry. I'm just going to read it from the actual book here instead of my scan. Yeah. Uh, At the other end of life, many remain world leaders in their 70s or older without anyone questioning their need for lavish continuing testing and care. Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe, who is 92, has undergone multiple treatments for prostate cancer. If we go by newspaper obituaries, however, we notice that there is an age at which death no longer requires much explanation. Although there is no general editorial rule on these matters, it is usually sufficient when the deceased is in their 70s or older for the obituary writer to invoke natural causes. It is sad when anybody dies, but no one can consider the death of of a septuagenarian tragic, and there will be no demand for an investigation. Once I realized I was old enough to die, I decided that I was also old enough not to incur any more suffering, annoyance, or boredom in the pursuit of a longer life. I eat well, meaning I choose foods that taste good and that will stave off hunger for as long as possible, like protein, fiber, and fats. I exercise, not because it will make me live longer, but because it feels good when I do. As for medical care, I will seek help for an urgent problem, but I am no longer interested in looking for problems that remain undetectable to me. Ideally, the determination of when one is old enough to die should be a personal decision based on a judgment of the likely benefits, if any, of medical care, and, just as important at a certain age, how we choose to spend the time that remains to us. So that's kind of the thesis of her book. reading the book made me think about that trade-off there of let's say you're clinging tenaciously to life and let's say you're 15 years old and you're striving to you know and, and you're faced with some sort of uh, of life-threatening disease and you do everything in your power to extend your life uh, for as long as you can to me that makes a lot of sense right but then you have people let's say who are over 100 years old and uh let's say they're they're already like suffering from all these things and uh and we say, like, do you want to work hard to give yourself, you know, three extra, um, you know, three extra days of life? The answer is not so simple, you know, uh, and that's what she meant when she said that it's not uh, a tr- it's not tragic when uh, someone who's uh, extremely old dies in the same sense as it is when someone dies prematurely, you know. So in thinking about Marcus Aurelius' statement, which, again, he calls unphilosophic, it led me to think about, like, you know, uh, as much as we in Judaism praise extending life and and living in a healthy manner, you know, at what at what point do we draw the line? For example, on Shabbos you're supposed to eat, you know, um, uh, 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 delicacies, right? Now, and we do that for owning Shabbos. Now, no one that I know of says. Well, if you eat delicacies, you know, then you are potentially shortening your lifespan because you're eating food that's not as healthy as you should be eating every day of the week. No, we don't say that 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 you know that um that you should refrain from enjoying Shabbos, um you know, on account of the the possibility that this might shorten your life by uh, by a year or two, you know. But on the other hand, if you were faced with a decision right now to prolong your life for a year or two, we would say that you should prolong your life for a year or two, you know? Um, So, I don't know. I guess this is a little bit of a scattered episode. Um, This is what I get when I record in the afternoon. But hopefully there's something of value in there for somebody. uh, I'm not going to record it again. I'll tell you that much. Uh, if you gain from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at Matt-Schneeweiss. And my Zelle and PayPal are Gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at Gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make tour ideas available and accessible to everyone.